This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you want to Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. It's Thursday evening. It's about 18 minutes past seven. It's April the 17th, 1986, at Top of the Pops. Our beloved, precious, life-affirming Top of the Pops is being pissed about with. And we, that is to say, Sarah B, Neil Kulkarnet and my good self, Al Needham, are well dischuffed. We've already witnessed Gary Davis ripping the powdered wig off Falco and wiping his arse with it. A complete desecration of the Top 40 rundown and we've just been lectured by some youths about drugs, and that's all we can stand, and we can't stand no more. So, come and join us as we enter the final furlong of the neon-encrusted, success-coated hellscape of 1986. Sha! Of 21 places to number 16, it's Michael Jackson's sister. She looks like him, she dances like him. Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately? Born in Garrett, Indiana in 1966, Janet Jackson was the 10th and youngest spawn of Joe and Catherine Jackson and was three years old when the band her older brothers were in, the Jackson Five, suddenly became massive and the family were relocated to Los Angeles. After being allowed to have a piss about in the Motown studio whenever her brothers were on a break during the early 70s, she caught the bug, abandoned her dreams of being a race jockey and made her debut as a performer with her brother Randy at the MGM Casino in Las Vegas at the age of seven. In 1976, at the age of 10, she was a regular on the Jackson's own TV show on CBS and for a while appeared to be gravitating towards an acting career as she spent the rest of the 70s as a cast member of the sitcoms Good Times, A New Kind of Family and spent three series as Willis's girlfriend in Different Strokes. In 1984, she appeared in the fourth series of Fame as Cleo Hewitt, a new student who has a major crush on Leroy, but she packed it in because she felt that her and the rest of the cast were being treated like shit. By this time, she had already established herself as a recording artist, having signed a deal with A&M and put out her debut LP, Janet Jackson, in 1982 which got to number 62 on the Billboard album chart. But her second LP, Dream Street, which was released in October of 1984, fared worse in the charts, despite having a lead-off single featuring Michael Jackson doing his vocal ticks and the track Two to the Power of Love, being a duet with the child-blood vintner of pop, Cliff Richard. <laughs> that was put out over here, but it only got to number 83 in September of that year. 
Weldish chuffed at the way her recording career was going, she severed all management ties with her family in the wake of the failure of Dream Street and turned to Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, two original members of the time, Prince's support band, who had just worked with the SOS band on Just Be Good To Me, but had been sacked from their own band by Prince for being caught up in a blizzard and being unable to make a gig. They said they'd be happy to work with her on the condition that she relocated to Minneapolis to get away from her interfering dad and she knobbed off the acting career. After helping her transition from Michael's nice little sister into an independent artist steeped in the R&B sound of now, the LP, Control, was in the can. But when Jackson's manager swung by Minneapolis to hear it, he told them it was too short and they needed another song. On their way to a restaurant to finish the haggling, Lewis played a tape of demos they were working on for their own LP, and when the third song came on, this one, he was insistent that Janet got to bagsy it. This is the lead-off cut from Control, which had been released in February, and is currently number 26 in the Billboard 200 LP chart. It's a thinly-veiled go at her ex-husband, James DeBarge, where she tells her paramour that he's not stepping up to the mark, and he's going round thinking he's summered. It's the follow-up to Dream Street, which failed to chart anywhere, and it entered our chart at number 67 four weeks ago. It took three weeks to get into the top 40, and she was rewarded with a spot on top of the Pops' Breakers section last week. This week, it soared 21 places to number 16, and here she is in the Breakers section again, in a video set in a greasy spoon, choreographed by a pre-fame Paula Abdul. In the Breakers section for two weeks in a row? Mm. What you talking about, Michael Hurl? (laughs) (laughs) Well, 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 I mean, look... Before all of us start talking about this record and video, could I just take a moment to add a personal note here? Mm. Um, oh, go ahead, Nick. Yeah, okay, right. Um, everyone be quiet, right? This is a message purely for Janet Jackson, if she's listening. <laughs> I cling on to the idea that Janet's absence, her disappearance from public life for the past decade, odd, is, is down to her just being able to live all of our dreams, i.e. Mm. fucking around on our phones from the moment we wake up to the moment that we sleep. And, you know, I think she might be aware of every time she's mentioned. So, so if you're listening, Janet, I just want to explain something. I, I patiently explain to every partner I've ever had. It's an elemental <laughs> thing you have to accept if you're going to be with me. Um, you don't need a J-O-B, but you do need to know that I am in love with Janet Jackson. I would do anything for Janet Jackson. And if Janet came a calling, I would drop everything, literally everything, my home, my kids, my family, my work to be with her. Right. Even your cat. Yeah, no, sorry, it's Janet. <laughs> I love her so much. Janet, I, I can vouch for Neil, he's lovely. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, now that's out of the way, can we talk about how shit Gary Davis's introduction is to this? Oh. <sighs> you know, he, he just constantly makes reference to Michael. Um, he sings like her, he dances like yes. her, she looks like him. And that's the way Janet Jackson was perceived by a lot of people, just a female Jacko. To the point where there were rumours going about that Janet Jackson actually was Michael mm. Jackson doing a bit of a Camille like Prince right. did. You read that in interviews at the time, you know, she's endlessly asked about her brother and her family, Mm. which is precisely the family she's seeking to step away from. Yeah. And it's really annoying. I mean, it's also noticeable, by the way, in in the contemporary press, how many male journalists, they feel absolutely fine referring to her as chubby. Yeah. And and 
things like this. But, you know, of course, all of this totally ignores how out here as punters in Potland, compared to Michael, Janet's records, Control in particular, sounded modern and thrilling um, mm. like nothing else. And even though Control wasn't a debut album, it's a record that's so good from the title to the sleeve shot to everything. Yeah. This album, Control, bossed my 86 in a big way. Uh, Like nothing else apart from Parade by Prince. Mm. I've been in love with her ever since. Such a ridiculous record, the whole thing. It's so daring and spare and kind of spiky. I came to it after Rhythm Nation. Like I got into her through Rhythm Nation and then went back to Control. It's like... When was this recorded? Mm. I was into Michael Jackson at the time as well, but they, they couldn't be more different, really, in most mm. ways. Mm. It's understandable that people would ask her, you know, it's just logical, but also it was extremely tiresome, the way that she was um, yeah. spoken about and to at this point. But she obviously was so driven and so talented and had such good judgment in who she worked with that, mm. you know, she she triumphed in the end and triumph right from here actually i mean like look how amazing this is you can see that she's still kind of somewhat raw in a lot of ways because she carried on just refining her thing and developing it Mm -hmm. but it's just so exciting you know especially after the kind of listless whateverness of just say no yeah (laughs) after what we've had so far this is a much welcome glimpse into the future of what would be known as r&b you know and and her aligning with the founder members of the time it's like an arranged marriage between the two dominant households of modern black music and it's actually come off oh yeah it's an absolute triumph i mean it's amazing control because it successfully repels the objectification of Janet, either as a sexual figure or just a figure of kind of Jackson-related curiosity. Mm. Um, but also, I mean, it's because of the sound and Janet's words, which, yeah. which of course have impact for women, but further, I think they just have impact for anyone being pushed around, basically. Yeah. It's an absolute fucking masterpiece, that album. And this single like for many of us was was my first introduction to mm. it and unlike gary davis none of us who were listening to control were remarking on how like michael jackson exactly at all we were talking about how actually janet seemed better than mj at this time she has been around for a few years now but to little to no attention in the british music press i mean she was first seen over here in 1981 when she was acting as michael jackson's interpreter in an nme interview with danny baker but when her own career started it was given the absolute shortest of shrift but here she is now very much her own woman totally it's a fucking behemoth control because it prophesizes so much in black pop mm. and beyond. Of course, you can hear the sort of birth pangs of New Jack Swing here. You can mm. also hear shades of what would become the sound of rap music here too. I mean, it's no accident that Jam and Lewis, they use the same, I mean, to get geeky, they use the same ensonic mirage synthesizer that Public Enemy would use next year on Rebel Without a Pause. And oh, really? It, and this is a time, 86, where when we think about what white imaginings of black music are, they're kind of firmly located decades in the past, this kind of dream of soulful warmth and passion. Yeah. Whereas what black pop itself is actually taking on is this 
sort of inhuman, almost industrial sound with, with control in particular. And it's becoming self-sufficiently something that can, can be created no longer by sort of funk bands with 20 members, but by just production duos and singers. It's so prophetic of what happens in the 90s. And mm. it's so ahead of its time in that regard. Although, of course, that idea in itself touches back to Donna Summer and Georgia Maroda. I think this uh, album is just as pivotal as that moment. Control is a real shift in everything. If you can say that Black Pop has three revolutionary changes from 75 onwards, you can say that the first one's I Feel Love, the second one's that first Chic album, and the last one is this. It totally right. sets the tone for the subsequent decade. It's an amazing record. Yeah, yeah, you really want to. It really compels you to listen to it as well because there's so much space in it yeah. and it's so minimal. And yeah, yeah. It just draws you in in that way into the spaces of it. And then that you've got this kind of fantastically itsy bitsy but not sort of leaning too hard onto them she's got quite a soft mm. um sweet voice but she's using it as a little stabbing weapon you mm. know and in the video she's got this kind of baleful stare mm. oh, yeah. which, oh God. and this kind of in the in the lyrics there's this sort of it's very confrontational totally. so mm. you get this delicious kind of combination of those elements those yeah. kind of disparate elements yeah. um which just makes you go ooh Ooh, yeah, it's so exciting. It's great. Mm. So the video, Janet's sat in a calf with her mate. With Paula Abdul. Oh, is that Paula Abdul? Yeah, yeah. Fuck. Well, she's sat in the calf with Paula Abdul, who provides <laughs> quite possibly the first bit of sass the people of Britain have ever encountered <laughs> when she coats down Janet's bloke. And suffice to say, there is a lot of snake-necky gesturing. What Ooh. has he done for you lately? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the video's fucking ace, isn't it? Like all Janet videos. No one's talking to any hands just yet, but, you know, that's imminent. Mm. Mm, mm. I love the set because there's no pretense at realism. It's like mm. a stage so sort of musical type set but yes. there's a total realism to the attitude of janet and, and that mm. face that sarah met, you know oh, that yeah. broken fierce face she never smiles in this video no so when she does smile later in the when i think of you video it's a big moment when we see janet smile later she does a little smirk in uh, the video for nasty she's sat in a car oh, right. and just does a little <laughs> so close the door if you want me to respond smirk mm. she just does this little she sort of rolls her eyes to the side and right. does a tiny smirk and it's it's because uh, these these gestures are so little and like i said you just lean in to to kind of take them in you know mm. and like the little murmurs in this as well it's, it's kind of little tiny you know as well as the um in between sort of way lower in the mix you know it's just i swear mm. <laughs> it's like oh my god this dude so then we actually see the bloke poncing his way past the window and he absolutely thinks he's summer doesn't he he's dressed <laughs> up like the Fonz this is pre run DMC sportswear and big trainers mm. which would have happened in six months time but you know he's just walking along as if to say yeah I am going out with Janet Jackson actually <laughs> aren't I brilliant and you just know what's going to happen next because if pop videos have taught us anything, chaps, it's that pop stars, and particularly black American pop stars, they don't just sit down and talk out a relationship dispute. There has to be a lot of dancing and staring at each other, doesn't there? Backed yeah, yeah. up by their racially diverse mates. <laughs> <laughs> videos that set up an adversarial situation are always great. I mean, me and mm. Sarah talked about the meatloaf and share video <laughs> a while back. And I'm, I'm, I think this is possibly the greatest video like that since 
against that one. I think Serious by Donna Allen is the gold standard. Ah. And yeah. the granddaddy of them all, of course, is America in the film version of West Side Story. That's the origin point, isn't it, of all this? More people should settle their relationship disputes with a bit of a dance with the mates. <laughs> <laughs> And what well, fucking it, dancing, yeah. Oh, yes. It's almost a disappointment that it seems to work in the end. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I kind yeah. of wanted yeah, to go, yeah. they sit down and he buys her a donut and stuff. And it's yeah. like, oh, now it's like the bar is still pretty low here. Like, mm. you know, I, I wanted her to just, you know, stomp out of there and take everyone with her, including the chef. So he couldn't mm. get anything to eat at the diner. <laughs> yeah, the, the chef's a right fucking Trump, isn't he? He's, he's got lank hair and he, he we see him picking at the icing on one of the cakes. Yeah, he's the comic relief. It's a whole little story told mm. in in shoulder movements. Yeah. Yes. Unblinking straightened camera stares. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. it's nice that it works out at the end. Well, for now, you know. Mm. You, you can tell he's on his last warning. It works out, but there's no softening to Janet. No. And that's because of the dance moves. Yeah. Of course, sort of rigid lines in dance movement had existed before in terms of doing a robot and all of that sort of stuff. But nothing is fluid in these dance moves. Everything's straight lines, but but Mm. that rigidity uncovers the funkiness in the arrangement of the song. So it's just a perfect combination um, between dance moves and and the sound of the music. Dance moves that have actually been choreographed with a care for the sound of the record. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that... um you know, in a couple of years' time, when, um, you know, as you've already referenced, Neil, no, nothing going on but the rent becomes a hit. You know, mm. that side of R&B, no, no money, no... Uh, yeah, that that side of R&B argument, that side of R&B domestic argument, you know, no money, no fan air, that doesn't apply here, because it's <laughs> Janet Jackson, she's got enough money. Step up to the mark, or we're going to Jeremy Kyle. Oh, if only Jeremy Kyle had dance routines, he'd be still on today. The Jeremy Kyle dancers. Mm. Jesus Christ. Lie detector and co. <laughs> it's more about the, the kind of emotional involvement, mm. isn't it? It's more about, mm. like, are you going to show up? in the larger sense, in this relationship, or not. Mm. Which is a recurrent theme in pop, but it's rarely done with this kind of reasonable aggression. Yeah, Mm. and and it it (laughs) stems from, crucially, Jam and Lewis being the first people to actually ask Janet what she wanted to do. Yes. And what she wanted to sing about and what she Mm. wanted to write. So they, they gave her songs and they worked with her on songs that she wanted to do. That had never happened before in her career. Yeah, she wasn't going to be little Janet Jackson. No, no. And consequently, you know, Control is obviously an important title for all kinds of reasons. And I've said that it mm. prophesizes the future, but starts a lineage of black female artists who have just stayed uncompromised, slightly isolated, who live off their hits, mm. and whose sporadicness just amplifies the myth around them. So, I, you know, I think yeah. so much comes from this. Like, I mean, TLC and stuff like that, obviously, but Missy, Lauren Hill, Mary J. Blige, Erica Badu, it all kind of starts with mm. control, I think. And she's still only 20 at this point, which is no age at all when you think about it. No. I just can't believe I met her. <gasps> you shook her hand, didn't I you? shook her hand, yeah. Oh. Went to see her in Rotterdam. Oh, my God, what a show. I remember that review of yours. <laughs> Holy shit. Somewhat hysterical, yeah, as great. I recall. Yeah, no, there was a meet and greet afterwards, and I never normally do those things. Not not because I'm above that kind of thing, it's just that they scare me. Mm-hmm. But my God, you don't get many chances to meet Janet Jackson. And it wasn't like, you know, we had a big effusive conversation. I was, I was on the conveyor, you know, going past Janet, mm. very small, obviously. And I just uh, sort of leaned over 
and shook her hand and said thank you that was, the show was amazing and she just said thank you very much and that was that but yeah this hand um, has touched Janet Jackson's hand oh my god Ooh. <laughs> how long before you washed it Neil <laughs> I didn't go crazy about it, but oh my God, what a moment. It was a levitating moment that it was, it was uh, every oh. now and then in this shitty business of writing about pop music, you just have these moments that are just like, fuck me. I can't believe that happened. And that was one of the pinnacles for me. But a year after this episode, when she's in London, she gets the privilege of sitting down with none other than rock expert, mm. David Stubbs in an interview for Melody Maker. Oh, Neil, you must have been right jealous of that. <laughs> I mean, Stubbs was my hero at this time anyway, 86, 87. Oh. So, you know, it was a meeting of minds there. But I remember mm. David, unlike virtually everyone else who spoke to Janet in this period, just didn't condescend and, and didn't, you know, do those, uh, didn't ask loads of questions about fucking Michael. Maybe that's because the first words out of her mouth to David were, are you from the sky? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And he immediately assumed that she was just yeah, barking yeah. mad or something. But then she said that she meant Sky magazine. <laughs> and then David immediately distinguishes himself by asking her if he could nick a grape off the table, only to be told by her that it was actually an olive. <laughs> I remember that now. Yeah, and then he yeah. asks her what she's up to, and uh, she says, oh, I, I've just got myself a pet bear. As you do. What? <laughs> Sadly, or luckily, wasn't sat on her lap at the time, staring at David. And, yeah, she just said that her time bunkered away in Minneapolis mm. was a proper woodshedding period that dragged her right out of the showbiz bubble and helped her to become her own person. And David thought that was nice. Mm. I don't know if he shook around. <laughs> I'm sure he did, but you know, the miraculous thing about Janet, I mean, uh, Sarah mentioned the Rhythm Nation album. The more you listen to that album, it's actually better than Control a little bit. It's an astonishing album, that. But she's yeah. managed to keep her mystique intact, Janet, completely mm. intact in all the years since. Um, you know, wardrobe malfunctions notwithstanding. She's, oh, she's, yes. She's, she's done that. It's great that um, since she has read every mention of her ever, she will now know that you believe her to be the first human who evolved to actually have sex with herself. Yes, I believe I did say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Such a great line. But, you know, that that's the thing about writing live reviews. If you do them on the night or, like, in the morning because you're on a weekly deadline or whatever, you can't keep out the, the frothy excitement that you're in. It was just astonishing seeing Janet Jackson live. She was amazing and shaking her hand and all of that. I'll never forget that. I'll also never forget that that was the review where I first had a run-in with uh, Mark Shitterland <laughs> regarding his ideas about, you know, uh, making references. Because because I said in the review, I think I said, uh, yeah, we're not in Kansas anymore because her show was amazing. All sorts of costume changes. And it came out and it said something like, um, and just like Dorothy in the classic film, was it was, we're not in Kansas oh. anymore. <sighs> Fucking with my rhythm, man. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> so the following week, what have you done for me lately? Soared another 10 places to number six and a week later got to number three, its highest position. 
The follow-up, Nasta, got to number 19 for two weeks in June, and she completed her 1986 run of singles with When I Think of You getting to number 10 in September and Control stalling at number 42 in November. She went on to rack up 35 more top 40 singles, including 15 top tenors, and she got one of her nips out of the Super Bowl and made American religious bellends throw a proper mod on, which was skill <laughs> I wonder what event she's saving to get the other one out that's Janet Jackson right now here's my favourite of the new entries this week straight in at 28 making their debut on top of the box tonight we welcome It's Immaterial with Driving Away From Home hey. now just get in Close the door and put your foot down. We don't even get the benefit of seeing Davis back in the studio because there's so much to fit in. So while Janet and her bloke do the dance of reconciliation, he prepares us for what he reckons is the pick of this week's new entries. Driving away from home, Jim's tune by It's Immaterial. Formed in Liverpool in the mid-70s, Albert Dock and the Cod Warriors were an art rock group led by John Campbell, who were the in-house band at Eric's, the spawning ground for Liverpoolian bands of the Aventis, and supported the Sex Pistols there in October of 1976. In April of 1977, they changed their name to Yachts and supported Elvis Costello at Eric's, which led to a one-single deal with Stiff Records. But soon afterwards, Campbell left the band to return to his art school course. However, he soon plunged back into the music scene and in 1980 he formed It's Immaterial, so called because they didn't give a toss what the band was called, along with assorted members of Yachts who were floundering by this time despite supporting The Who on their 1979 tour and would eventually split up in 1981. A year later, they tacked on Jarvis Whitehead, who Campbell had first met at that Sex Pistols gig and started picking up John Peel sessions and occasional appearances in the independent charts. But after a while, assorted members started to drift away, including Henry Priestman, who went on to form the Christians, and they were reduced to a two-piece. This single, the follow-up to Ed's Funky Diner, which failed to chart, was recorded in Milwaukee under the supervision of Jerry Harrison of Talking Heads, but they didn't like the country and western feel he decided to drape it in, or the rhythm section he'd got in, so they went behind his back and got the engineer to record their own version. However, they did keep in the harmonica bit, which was recorded by a local musician called Jim Lieber, who did regular session work in Nashville, hence the Jim's Tune part of the song title. To their astonishment, it entered the charts at number 96 a fortnight ago. To their even greater astonishment, it was picked up on by Daytime Radio 1, who played the shit out of it, which caused it to soar 38 places to number 58. And this week, after an appearance on Wogan, it soared another 30 places to number 28. And here they are, on the top of the pop stage, making 
their debut performance. Well, what a meteoric rise, chaps, but oh dear, the limitations of Top of the Pops as new neon set reveals itself <laughs> in full, doesn't it? It does, because the Top of the Pops stage is kind of like a stage in a very busy nightclub or venue. Yes. And it really does not work for essentially sort of dismalists mm. like this band are. Yeah. Um, there's a real incongruity between their appearance and what they look like and the song that they're singing and yeah. the kind of buzzy flounciness of the stage yeah i mean on that stage uh, are a couple of understated post-punk veterans with an old school radio mic and an acoustic guitar and they're backed by a woman on a keyboard and a bloke on a stool with a harmonica underneath a glowing pulsing pyramid looking for all the world as if they've been accidentally booked to play barry noble's astoria on miss wet t-shirt nights or <laughs> an advert for terry's pyramid <laughs> it's a clash isn't it mm. i remember seeing this and I seem to recall on chart music, I talked about Tears for Fears and how disappointed I was with what they looked like. Mm. Um, I and felt how they danced, so- no doubt. Well, yeah. Because <laughs> I, I remember all that radio play, and it did get a lot of radio play. Mm. Catchy chorus, so I kind of liked it. And I, I, I didn't know anything about them or where they were from. And, you know, seeing them actually in the flesh... I just got mm. this crushing sense of disappointment. I what you were expecting, Neil? Well, I mean, the record is quite a suggestive record, and I just thought they were Americans or something, or right. at least Americans were involved. I, I don't know. I, I thought they, they'd look cooler than they did. I think I'd seen the video, but what was the video for this? Because I know they, they did one for the Tube, and then there was one later that turned up. The videos mm. are far more sort of collaged indeterminate affair where yeah. you can kind of ignore the google maps has had a point too many nature of the lyrics because the <laughs> visuals were kind of cool the sound was kind of american it almost convinced me they were american but here mm. in the studio in the top of the pop studio you get what its material actually are you know a few drippy liverpudlians who happen to have stumbled on a great chorus why do you think radio one played this to death I mean, Radio 1 would do that every now and again, but it'd be stuff like the oldest swinger in town or Captain Beaker. (laughs) I mean, to Radio 1, this is an absolute novelty, isn't it? I think the novelty aspects are the the verses. Yeah. Those chatty verses, spoken word kind of about the M62 and and, and other things, uh, that that kind of makes it, oh, I know those places, I know those roads. Mm. And then the chorus is undeniably catchy. Mm. It's funny, I've seen some heated arguments about this record among music journos and other nerds. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, there's a big love-hate divide. And I'd completely get it, because I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. I remember it from the time where I remember the chorus. Because Mm. it was everywhere, I guess I would have just heard it on the radio. Um, I I don't remember seeing this performance, so I had no notion of what they looked like until now, really. And then I was like, Mm. oh, yeah, no, that makes sense, yeah. Mm. The the chorus seems to come out of nowhere, but the verse is definitely of that guy who's a sort of floppy student fop, you know. (laughs) Mm. Mm. Um, Mm. But I winced a little bit because he doesn't really have the driving voice, if you will, for that sort of Sprechgesang talking over music in the verse, but it totally works. I am fully on board with this now having listened to it and looked at it several times and right. it's so clever and it's so sweet yeah it sounds american mostly where that comes from i think is that bass line yeah. which is a very classic country and western kind of bass mm. ding 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 and ho 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 that's what it reminded me of. Well, it reminded you of what? How? Right. It made me want to make a tank out of a mm-hmm. cotton reel and some matchsticks. Oh, how? How? 
<laughs> yes, I blanked that out completely. Yeah. Oh, Sarah. Terrifying. It was terrifying. <laughs> Anywho, it's the sound of country and western. Also, it's mm. the sound of going in a car across America, mm. isn't it? Mm. Doesn't that just ping that neuron in your head? It's like that's. It sounds like a road trip. Mm. There's just something about that that evokes such an experience. Yeah. So you know that's obviously not an accident. But then you get the lyrics, which are very kind of self-consciously like, "Oh, teehee, we're in this funny little country, mm. and we're pretending like we're in America, yeah. and going on a massive road trip. Oh, it's only thirty miles to Manchester down the ocean. And I first winced at that really hard and just went, "Oh mm. God!" And then. I was like, no, no, this is really charming because the way that the chorus then sweeps that away and is so evocative. Mm. And it's really brilliant, I think. There's, um, oh, it's also, it's a lot like, not to suggest that they ripped this off at all, but um, Prefab Sprout had their album Steve McQueen out last year. Right. And um, there's a track on that called Farron Young. Which right, sounds, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, which is a lot like a lot like this. It's very Stan Ridgeway as well, isn't it? Do you think? Oh yeah, there's a bit of that, mm. and it's it's kind of Chris Isaacish as well. well. The production's lovely. I'd love to know what Simon thinks about this because it it really does lean deep into I lost my bag at Newport Pagnell territory. But you know, <laughs> I remember hearing this as a 17 year old lad who had failed his one and only driving test, mm-hmm. and the idea that you could leave your house, get into a car, and go to another city. Did my head in <laughs> and the idea of having mates who lived in manchester or newcastle or or even glasgow that was a mind blast mm. you know right about this time i got to know someone who lived in surrey hey up paul <laughs> hope you're all right duck and you know i crashed around his ass one weekend it was like being abroad like all the chain shops were in different places to each other <laughs> that was insane yeah when cities look different yeah yeah i mean I've, i'm sure we've all had that sense of like claustrophobia that this song evoked of like how small it is here and especially now I think there's this sort of suffocating sense of shrinkage where it's like harder to do anything Mm. here it's harder to even exist at all and it's harder than it's ever been to go and live anywhere else and you, that's that's an unpleasant mm. fucking mm. feeling, and you know that it's been driven by malign yeah. forces. But it's easy to forget, like even before the pandemic, like we just went on holidays here because it's like, well, there's a place we haven't mm. been, haven't been there either. It's lovely, you know. It's just like, oh yeah, you haven't been to this, you know. It's an island. There's loads and loads of places on the coast that you can go to, and they're all so so different from each other. Yeah, and it's not that small, especially if you don't drive. You know, it's 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 not that small. You wouldn't want to fucking drive across it in a day, would you? Well, maybe across it but not not, not not the whole length of it and um you know it's from an american perspective obviously hmm. they drive five hours to like buy a nice coffee mug which is not necessarily good no you, you're sort of trying to think like, is there like a, a bit of smugness in in this because uh, he does he does have a slightly smug sound to his voice but mm. i think it's just it's awkwardness oh, you know? God, yeah. and i think there's this lovely combination of things going on in this and it's partly there's a kind of expression of that yearning to be elsewhere just somewhere else mm. you go down the motorway for 30 mm. miles and it's somewhere completely different with different people with different everything yeah and that's such a part of the human experience and specifically the kind of yearning of some of the english for america like that largeness of self and that uninhibitedness that a lot of people i think feel i've mm. definitely felt that in my life and just gone Argh! you know i was going to go and live there i've got family there and stuff and i never did which is probably for the best but just the sensibility, I think, of just going, mm. I'm frustrated by the constraints of this culture and the smallness of it, and I want to go somewhere else. But if you can't, you make the best of it where you are. 
and that's all in there mm. and it's just the vocal line of the chorus that does this for me it, it does sound like trundling down a motorway at night in a ford fiesta with the heaters on full blast and <laughs> there's like a comforting little metallic <laughs> rattle and it can't be identified but it's not getting any worse and it's that thing there's mm. this lovely melancholy to it and also just a sense of like defiantly romanticizing where you live why not do that do that yes but the thing is i I agree it has this yearning to it but my relationship with the record has completely changed over the years because you know i'm not a passenger anymore i'm the driver now i'm dad cabs i have to drive everywhere um if you're in the back seat (laughs) oh here here we go brace yourself if if you're in the back seat right of a car you you can entertain these kind of dreams um and that record this record um, Mm. really did speak to me as, as a frequent passenger you know down the motorway it has got that yearning to it but these chatty verses um with the lead blokes kind of increasingly annoying thoughts about the view out of the window they just annoy me now um as a Mm. driver there's a midnight run sense in which if this guy was your kidnap victim you'd you'd pull over on the hard shoulder of slate pass (laughs) and just abandon him there because he just will not shut up with his rambling oh wow a little chef perhaps we could go for breakfast or or if you'd rather i've made some sandwich would you like cheese? <laughs> I've made them all. Aww. Do you want a United or a club or a trade? Just get out, man. You know, I mean. <laughs> oh man, he's brought all his stuff from home and he cut the sandwiches like <laughs> diagonally instead. I know. Of I know. Ways, no, 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 but what flavour club? Mm, it's got to be a mint for me. Orange. Uh, yeah, orange. I'm with you, sir. And um, um, look, if you got in a car with this cunt fairly rapidly, you would just be really angry with him. I realise it's a kind of. <laughs> You know, all the world's our oyster, you know, vague song. But I mean, look, if I'm in the driving seat, I want to know where are we going? Mm. You know, Manchester, Newcastle, Glasgow. There's no mention of stopping at services either. As a dad no. who likes to plan journeys like this, I, I can <laughs> feel my dadly rage rising at his Kerouac <laughs> style. You know, let's just hit the road and see where it takes us. Imprecision. That's kind of like in television, you generally don't see anyone go to the loo. Mm, mm, like, mm. because you know that that's going to happen at some point, but you don't need no. to see it. You know, it's like going to the services is a really functional part of travelling that you don't need in your sort of romantic little song about the M60. No, but I mean, for me, going to the services is romantic because my dad, he never stopped at services. Oh. He always just kept going. I mean, unless we needed a wee, that was a different thing. But that would be pulling over mm. the hard shoulder and having a slash in a bush or something. Mm. I mean, I remember these long journeys mainly because whenever we pulled into a petrol station my my dad had this weird thing um of of writing down the mileage and how much he'd paid for the fuel and right. all of this in a little red book that was in the glove compartment. Oh, like Keith Pratt. I reckon it's a post-OPEC crisis thing. I don't know what it mm. is. But um, yeah, I mean, that was the only break that we had. You know. But yeah, the annoyance of this song now is probably because I'm a driver and it is not helped by the, the top of the pop stage. Um, no. Which really doesn't do them any favours. Um, I think they would have been much better off, yeah, just playing the video for this. I mean, this is their moment in the sun after years of toil don't seem to be enjoying it do they it's sort of in character kind of it would be weird if they came out smiling they have done a lot of driving away from home of late because in tomorrow's (laughs) liverpool echo john campbell talks about how it feels to have made the big time after so many years of near misses and knockbacks and doesn't sound like he's having a laugh at all quote Ask him if he really wants to be a star and the silence is deafening before he says yes. 
If there is a reluctance, it is only because he wants it on his terms. Already the pace of having hit the charts with one of the fastest-selling singles of the year has taken its toll. Seven television appearances in eight days. No sleep for three nights while they work in the studio on a debut album. Interviews, appearances, more interviews, photo sessions, and so it goes. I'm knackered, he says. It really has gone crazy. The single has come from nowhere and we really didn't expect it to be like this. I can see how some people just get blown away from it all. I never want us to be in the position where our music suffers because of all the razzmatazz. It worries me a bit because at the moment it hasn't really sunk in. You spend all your life wanting to be successful, and then when it happens, it seems like it's happening to someone else. You watch Top of the Pops and Wogan, and suddenly you are on it. I was standing there on Wogan, miming along, they won't let you sing live on it, and thinking there's 11 million people watching me standing here miming, and my bottle nearly went. It was all so weird. I wanted to get back home for a pint. You don't know what it's going be like until it happens no and then you still don't know what it's like Mm. because it's this weird machine that is working without you and you're just sort of in it Mm. i totally get that this is a foreshadowing of all those other indie-ish bands who suddenly become massively successful isn't it yeah but when does that start happening those indie bands becoming massively successful i would argue that after 86 that doesn't happen for a while and and Mm. you know what we're about to see in 87 is Scott Aitken and Walkman coming in. And mm. these kind of one-off little hits that would weirdly get a load of radio play. I mean, like, it's immaterial. Like you said, they've got these long roots back in Liverpool's kind of indie past. Mm. Um, you know, They're the, almost like the last knockings of that Liverpool scene from the yeah, Aventis, very aren't much they? So. I mean, I think the Christians do have hits, don't they? Or a hit, yes. at least. But that kind of thing of a band with a history getting a hit like this, that's going to stop for a few years until kind of Manchester and Britpop come along mm. and that starts happening again. So this is a kind of last hurrah for that because, um, you know, in 87, uh, Static and Waterman are just going to take over. Mm. Anything else to say about this? I always hated the name. I think it's a silly, smug name. Mm. It's that very sort of, oh, we're above uh, pop bands with their silly mm. names, you know. And I thought, I bet this is, you know, this is one of those proper one-hit wonders where that's all they had. So I actually listened to the album. It's really good. Right. It's a really gorgeous sound and very interesting songwriting, all restrained just the right amount, because you can tell that they've figured out that they don't want to be, you know, too self-consciously quirky, which is what you get a bit mm. of in this single mm. there's a mass of ideas but it's all really thoughtfully arranged that nothing is too crammed in so it's mm. really dense but lots of space there's a bit of it sounds a bit teardrop explodes a bit tears for fears a bit scott walker right and um a bit talk talk like um i read an interview with uh, john campbell saying that they were the band that they had the most sort of kinship Ooh. with mm. that they were around at the time it's you know and there's almost a bit of crowded house in there just that sort of softness right yeah it's really good i really recommend it I'm fully on board with this band now, and I think they didn't get their due at all. No. There's loads of, like, lost bands who you sort of think, you know, well, in another universe, they're as big as, you know, mm. they're as big as Tears for Fears or whatever. Yeah. But it's like, it's partly there's loads of stuff that went wrong. They just were sort of doomed. Oh, yes. Bands like this I, I have sympathy with because they don't fit in immediately, and you're a bit unusual. You end up nowhere because labels and publishers don't have the imagination to promote 
these things on their own terms mm. that's something that that is never going to change i think yeah sarah b persuades me to listen to it's a material was not something i predicted for 2023 <laughs> Maybe they should have put them in a vintage car like the mixtures back in the early 70s. Mm. Or got them to dress up as um, Paul Burnett and Dave Lee Travis doing Convoy UK. (laughs) So the following week, driving away from home, leapt another 10 places to number 18. But a combination of the label not having pressed enough copies of the single, the band burning themselves out from making so many TV appearances, no available promo video to fall back on at the time, apart from one recorded by the Tube which appeared only once and they weren't going to let out to the BBC and their label Siren moving on to other bands as they assumed their work was done leading to the single dropping four places the week after and it's slipping down the charts with a rushed out official video doing nothing to turn the tide the follow-up A re-release of Ed's Funky Diner only made it to number 65 in August. Their debut LP, Life's Hard and Then You Die, got to number 62 in the LP chart in September. And this remains their one and only appearance on Top of the Pops. They're still active today, putting out their third LP, House for Sale, in 2020. 27 years after they first started work on it. got a bigger microphone than me. It's immaterial. Right now, let's have a look at this week's top ten. And going up eight places to number ten, Big Country, Look Away. Up six to nine, Simple Minds, All the Things She Said. Aha and Train of Thought, they're at one place to number eight. The Real Thing, You To Me Are Everything, are down one to seven. And down three to six, Sam Cook with Wonderful World. Down one to five, Samantha Fox, Touch Me, I Want Your Body. Up three to four, Queen, A Kind of Magic. Falco, Rock Me Amadeus is up two places to number three. And after three weeks at the top, Cliff Richard and the Young Ones are down to number two. Which means Britain has a brand new number one. Here in the studio, George Michael, A Different Corner. displaying severe microphone envy, Davis breaks down the top ten. Oh, two re-releases in the top ten, chaps. You to me are everything by The Real Thing, A Wonderful World by Sam Cooke. Why, it's almost as if the nation is starting to give up on the 80s, <laughs> music-wise at least, anyway. Yeah. A lot of us were. A lot of us were. Before we move on, um, I've got to point out that I am no judge of the female gaze, and I'm speaking as someone who isn't even a child's finger painting, let alone oil one. (laughs) But I must say that I've seen very little in Gary Davis's performance tonight that would make the housewives of Britain cup themselves in a special place. (laughs) Especially when compared to the next act. So, why are these sex workers throwing themselves through glass to get to him? Now, it's in the eyes, man. It's in the eyes. Oh, He's got right. Gary Davis' eyes. <laughs> <laughs> but they are. It's got fairly big eyes. They're kind of, uh, mm. yeah, wet with longing. Um, mm. and, and perhaps the hair as well. 
Yeah, I've got to say he's an extraordinarily good Nick nowadays. Fucking Ooh, hell. Yeah, he, looks he looks better now than he did then. Much like all of us, I think. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Finally, Davis introduces the number one single, A Different Corner by George Michael. We've covered George Michael and his debut solo single, Careless Whisper, a couple of times on chart music, and this is the follow-up. He's still a member of Wham, but not for much longer, because seven weeks ago he announced that he was not only splitting with the duo's management company after they were bought out by another company that was 40% owned by a South African investments group that also owns Sun City, but he's splitting the duo up. Even though there's a farewell single, LP and Wembley Stadium gig to come this summer, the solo career has already started. And this single, which was written and recorded from gun to tape in 14 hours, was released three weeks ago. And when Simon Bates played it for the first time on Radio 1, he was so taken by it that he lifted the needle, dropped it at the beginning and played it again because he's Simon Bates and he does what the fuck he likes. (laughs) It smashed into the chart as the highest new entry at number four a fortnight ago, nipped up to number two last week and this week it's pushed the double-decker bus containing Cliff Richard and the young ones off the summer of Mount Pop. And here he is, actually in the studio like he was a real-life human being, doing his stubbly, mullety thing. And it's clear by now, chaps, that George Michael has won the 80s hands down, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, practically all his contemporaries from the early 80s have either fallen off or become the things they were railing against when they first started. And it is he, and he alone, that stands at the top of the summit with his future mapped out, seemingly for the rest of the century. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he looks like fucking Lion-O from Thunder. <laughs> <laughs> Great. In a way. Amazing boots, jeans, big hair, fresh stubble. He still mm. looks like a pop star, and the audience are looking at him like he is. Yeah. And they're not chucking balloons about. No. Well, they, they, they just burst on his stubble, weren't they? <laughs> his peers, or, or his new tier of peers, are falling over themselves to shower plays upon the, the man, the musician, and yes, the business model. He's already recorded with Elton John and David Cassidy. Just been announced today that he's going to be working on a single in Los Angeles with Stevie Wonder. Mm. According to John Blake's White Hot Club in the it's a ballad in the same vein as careless whisper but somehow it's more adult it's very electric and possibly the best thing he has ever done well it probably wasn't because nothing ever comes of it but he's very much in demand by the giants of pop i mean elton john himself said along with perhaps blank george michael is the greatest songwriter of his generation who do you think blank is who do we think Elton John thinks blank is? Uh, oh, God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. We'll come to that later yeah, then, shall yeah. we? I've got to say, this is a fucking weird number one, isn't it? Probably one of the weirdest number ones of the 80s. Yeah, it's so strange to be, to be number one. Yeah. Do you think this would have been number one if anybody else but George Michael had recorded it? No, probably not. That's the thing, isn't it? Is that it's George... I mean, it's partly all these people have fallen over themselves to work with him because sometimes talent will out and sometimes you recognise that someone is on track to join the greats, you know. Mm. It's this very sparse, deeply weird, chorusless song 
And the, the yeah. fact that he only he could infuse it with this sort of billowing emotion. Mm. And that's why. That's why it's number one. It's because it's fucking heartbreaking. Oh, God, and God. it does stuff. I mean, the thing is, I don't experience synesthesia. You know, the thing where, like, colours taste of things and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but this song has always done explodey things to my brain. And, like, this song is obviously very bright white, isn't it? Yes. It's white. It's a huge, white, empty song. And mm. it's like, and it tastes of crushed ice. Ooh. There's a clip, a little tiny clip in the middle of the video, which is indeed George sitting around a massive white room. And mm. that's what it had to be, because that's what this song is, is a huge white room. And mm. there's this amazing contrast between, like, the deep, familiar, roasty warmth of George Michael's voice and this mm. kind of ice palace around it. <laughs> you keep waiting for some strings or something that never arrive. Mm. Something. Because there's this sort of drone. Mm. You expect some sort of flourish or something to hold on to. And all yes. you get is this kind of... There's a sort of sympathetic Spanish guitar, which I think they could have left out because it adds a sort of note of comforting sorrow which is not really what this song is about yeah it's almost like yeah oh you know maybe you start looking through airbnbs in menorca maybe <laughs> i can start to heal go on a nice holiday maybe even have a little holiday mm. romance no no you have to sit in that corner with your pain <laughs> as if it will never end that's you know and there's a kind of shattered tremulous piano it sounds like it's playing way down the hall somewhere yes. all you have to cling on to is this kind of light synth bass which is kind of round and friendly bom bom bim mm. um, and it kind of bounces but also establishes this sense of hollowness mm. it's almost like the prisoner ball coming towards you well how bad can it be it's just a big white ball no no it's misery forever that's what it is yeah i mean it's almost like the music you hear when channel four had ad breaks with no adverts a few years previous no this is not something you could ever put i'm really glad it's never been licensed to my knowledge mm. Like, there are so many things mm. where, you, you know, you, you hear it on an advert and, and you go, how has that been allowed? Is there not some sort of council mm. where, I know it doesn't matter, but it's like sometimes you'll hear like Nina Simone or something and you go, how, what, why is this on a car advert? Mm. You know, fuck, fuck the now. But, and you know, Sarah, <laughs> I was just going to say, oh, I wonder what happens when George Michael dies. What music will they use in the adverts? And then I go, he's dead. Mm. He died fucking years ago. He st still, yeah. still doesn't compute that George Michael isn't no. on the living side of the world. He is one of those. It is like an error in reality. Mm. Indeed. I mean, it was Christmas Day and the news came through. And I got it. This is how I always end up hearing the news of big people dying, is somebody that assumes that I already know going, oh, isn't it sad about Amy Winehouse, isn't it, at a festival? What, isn't it sad about George Michael? What? Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah. And I was with, you know, all my favourite people and we were all quite quite merry and stuff and just like <gasps> oh. Oh, it was heartbreaking. and it was you know it was so sad well I, I think um, the, the word Sarah used was sparse and, and that's exactly it. Mm. It, it it's so weird for me to see this in its original context because I remember when this song came out I simply did not get it mm. because I was young and this is an intensely adult song in a lot of ways oh, yes. it's got no drums. I mean, I hated all records without <laughs> drums, pretty much. And, and as a young person, uh, it, it just seemed like this got to number one because it was George yeah. Michael. Yeah, because but, he's oh, a, you only buy that because you fancy him. Yeah, because he's a big enough star to just generate this instant sort of buy-before-you-try thing. Mm. He has this commercial momentum that can't be stopped. I mean, I still think that, actually, but the older I've got, 
the more this song gets to me and mm. the more this song rises in the George Pantheon to the point I'd put it only second to to Fast Love. I think right. it's, it's like his, one of his finest moments. Mm. And it is such a sparse number one. Yeah. Um, barely there at all. You know, just two verses, really. And the first George Michael record, I think, where rather than going somewhere or doing something, he's paralysed in this record. It's all wispy and cloudy because the protagonist of the record george mm. is confused and mm. despairing and just kind of wandering around his his own paralysis yeah he's not going for anything at the moment is a no and he's he, he, and crucially it's one of his first records to not mimic anything to not mm. sound like club music it, it, it's completely unique on the back of the sleeve to this record it says dedicated to a memory yeah. Yeah. and on the front there's just this black and white shot of a guy with his back to the camera some distance away walking into a park kind of totally alone mm. it looks like the cover to Joy Division's atmosphere right now Although George was still officially one half of Wham, it's hard not to read this song as a kind of farewell to all that. And it really is a true solo record, you know, entirely composed, sung, played and produced by the same person. And Mm. we won't get that again until sort of White Town. And it's mm. the first one of those since Stevie Wonders I Just Called to Say I Love You. The, the sound of this record, though, it's more like sort of Eno or ambient music. Yes. And, and I, I kind of wonder a lot about what was influencing George at this time. Yeah. He has recently appeared on a, at this point on a BBC Two Arts documentary where he reviews Mark Johnson's um, An Ideal for Living book about Joy Division. Right. And on yes. that, he speaks really warmly about Joy Division's music. Yes, I he does, whether yeah. That was, yeah I Isn't that the that one was... with Morrissey in it as well? Yeah, I think And Tony so, yeah. Blackburn. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fucking yeah. hell. <laughs> <laughs> a meeting of minds. Yeah. But, but I mean, beyond, beyond the Farewell to Wham thing, there's also a subtext here that perhaps couldn't be discussed at the time. Um, the song seems to be about a friend he can't bring himself to tell he's in love with. Mm. You know, I would promise you all of my life, but to lose you would cut like a knife, so I don't dare. Yeah. Because I've never come close in all of these years. You're the only one to stop my tears. I'm so scared. This paralyzing fear of rejection that Mm. prevents him from getting close to his desired other, but also stops him from moving away. It's this torture of a kind of lifelong compromise. And all of this amazing lyrics is conducted in perhaps the first yeah George Michael it doesn't feel like a pastiche of other music Wham Records picked off genres Mm. and whammed them up yes you know whether that's rap or, or 60s Motown or disco this one really doesn't and in a way, weird way, it's almost like it's a very indie song in a way. Mm. It, it's like a homage to Jimmy Webb or Carl Wilson type songwriting, the Beach Boys at their most strung out. Yes. I mean, it was startling to hear a song like this from George at this point. Mm. It's about disillusionment and broken hopes. But there's a dissonance in this performance because, yeah, it's a song coming from this small cramped space. But he, yeah, he looks like fucking lion He still looks like a pop star. <laughs> All the neon's gone, replaced by a burst of white light, presumably in an attempt to ape the video. And a background of huge perspex test tubes with George in a dark leather jacket with all manner of fringing on it over a white shirt with jeans and brown cowboy boots. It's got to be said, he, he looks fucking awful, man. <laughs> he looks like he's just joined in a cowboy club up the road okay my argument uh, my counter to that al is who gives a shit 
Right. Well, it's okay. A different- yeah, <laughs> and and also kind of chuck in. It was 1986 in the top of the pops a week before. Brian Ferry pitches up doing his latest single. He's got a fucking awful blue jacket on with all the fringe in. It's like he's wearing every single one of Roger Daltrey's jackets from the <laughs> early 70s. And fucking uh, 1986 even made Brian Ferry look shit. I, mean, I think, I, I do think Brian Ferry is slightly overrated as a style icon because he did wear some ludicrous shit in his time. But yes, it was mm. it was 1986. What, yeah, what are you going to do? Deliberately ludicrous. Mm. In 1986, this is the look he's going for and it's Oh, it's dreadful. Video playlist pop craze youngsters. Are we talking about Brian Ferry now or can we get back to talking about George Michael? <laughs> Talk about George Michael, Doc. Poor, poor Yog. He deserves better than this. I mean, mm. I just, I think he was he was a great pop star and uh, that doesn't mean that he wasn't sometimes slightly, I mean, obviously he was uncomfortable in his own skin mm. because, for obvious reasons. And I think sometimes that went all the way to the clothes. But Sarah, in the video, he looks mint. He's almost white pyjama, isn't he? Yeah, it's the kind of very expensive, like, linen, white flowing kind of garb. That's mm. sort of ascetic, maybe I'll just go and become a monk kind of way. Yes. <laughs> you could, I suppose, imagine George doing a different corner in his video garb. But that wouldn't have been significantly better, I don't think. I mean, mm. it is weird to see him singing this bright white song of desolation that is literally like being inside a cloud that is mm. filled with your own tears. But um, I, I... And so it's weird that he's wearing jeans and a, and a, a fringed cowboy jacket and cowboy boots like, mm. it, you know, like a normal man who wasn't aching through to his soul. But... <laughs> mm. uh, he had to wear something, you know. <laughs> it's like, yeah. But also the thing is, I think that, as you mentioned, the audience, you can't even sway. No. All you can do is stand still. And that's because the music is, is evoking this sense of frustrated movement. Yeah. What you experience is total stasis like you, and yeah. paralysis. Yeah. And that's what the audience do. There's a couple of them that are having a go at swaying, uh. but it doesn't really work. And then there's two of them that I noticed. There's one long shot just over a girl's shoulder and you just see like her big fluffy hair <laughs> to the left of the screen. And she's completely still as if she's wrapped with attention. And, you know, obviously he's miming. He's not even, you know. Mm. But that's what the record does to you. It freezes you. Yeah, yeah. And there's a boy with bleach blonde hair down on the right and he's so still. He looks like a mannequin. <laughs> when I spotted him, I was like... Oh man, it's so fucking emotional. But it's like a liminal state in song form. Uh, so putting that, I mean, it's incredible that it's number one, and it's incredible that it's on top of the pops. Mm. Top of the pops can't really contain this song. Mm, mm. The performance and the song and the reaction to it, it reminded me of four years previous on Top of the Pops, Ghosts by Japan. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah Just yeah. this really yeah, yeah, yeah. sparse song that the kids just gawp at. It's a fucking weird record, this. Mm. And, but, um, I think definitely the weirdest number one of the 80s. If George Michael was was more hip, in a sense, at, at this time, this would have been rightly hailed as a, a total masterpiece. Mm. Like, you know, one of the most important records of the decade. But what stops the record being a hip indie record is the vocal, because at key moments, that choked vocal he's kind of doing becomes a full-on the Michael roar, if you like. Not, not to force the lion over stereotype <laughs> too far, but, but tellingly, 
in the arrangement, what happens the louder George gets is that he feels further away. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah, the yeah. production gives the record that kind of fisheye lens feel. And this is George's mm. decision because he, he's done this himself. Yeah. Um, you know, that fisheye lens feel that at the point he's trying to come across as strong, it's actually the point in which he recedes into his, his own bubble of loneliness even more. I mean, of course, none of this would have registered with me at the time at all and at this point in the episode i'd have just thought no drums and walked out Mm. but some things i just think you have to grow into and this is definitely one of them it's become one of my favorite records and it it points towards listen without prejudice massively i think yeah um um, but and what's odd is how it's become an almost forgotten george michael track yes you know because you never hear it on the radio or anything but it's one of his absolute best yeah you can understand really why it doesn't get played and stuff because it's just so affecting you know Mm. i mean like you said that echo of his voice at the end it is like he has left the room Mm. and and like his soul has left his body and is offering itself to any entity that could promise him a return to being lonely and confused because that is better than this Mm. fuck you know that's not that no i mean it is like this sort of suspended waltz it's kind of hanging there in the air and it's kind of not a pleasant listen in some ways because it's really it's so full of pain and so it aches every line of it just aches and I, I remember feeling this at the time it was one of those little inklings that you get as a kid of what adult life is like mm. and I was mm. like woof yeah this doesn't yeah, sound good <laughs> like it was just it was there was this great mystery about it that really drew me in and mm. you couldn't help but feel something it was just like i don't know what's going on here but i um i feel it you know mm. um this is the other thing that this made me think of i haven't thought of for ages that um i went to an anthony gormley show about 15 years ago and there was an actual no. artificial cloud that was created by humidifiers in a big glass box mm-hmm. it's called blind Ooh. light and you could go in like a few people like 20 people at a time could go in and it was like a cool when you went in, it's like oh it's cool it's this fine white mist and you could breathe perfectly normally but you couldn't see anything like so you had right. to blunder around with your arms out and suddenly there would be another person like a stranger right there on your face and so there was <laughs> much bumping and giggling but there is no bumping in a different corner and certainly no giggling nor may no. there ever be again you're in this room of mist all alone. And if you reach out for the touch of another human being, all you find is a cold wall of glass. <laughs> I mean, he's still a member of Wham, but this is the most un-Wham single ever, isn't it? Very much so. And and, and a bizarre choice as a single, really. Mm. I mean, they could be sure it would be a hit. It's George. Do you think anyone would be seeing this as a new Wham single? Because after all, it's not like Andrew's contribution to this is any less than it was in Last Christmas or I'm Your Man. It's just not in the video this time. Well, as Wham uh, dissolved and George started his solo career, there was a sort of confusion about, you know, the status of the band. Mm. That's what's odd, really, thinking about this performance. He's made this song, and if you make a song like this, it changes everything in terms of what you realise that you're capable of. And it must have been so odd for George to go from this, you know, back to... Yeah. singing wake me up before you go go yeah he had he had range you know mm. yeah i mean it is a one-off but like you say it points towards what he's going to produce in the future and i think he was very sure of his own ability and his own vision yeah. and what he wanted to do and so he did it mm. but there's a mystery to this record that i think was possibly also mysterious to george himself you know, sometimes artists, they just make something that I'm not saying is beyond their capabilities. And certainly he, he was responsible for all of this. But 
there's a magic and a mystery to this that that goes beyond even his authorship of it. It's it's a really <laughs> odd record. Yeah, I'm yeah, so glad we got to cover it because mm, it, it, yeah, it really too. is remarkable. This one. Yeah. If you if you make art at all, sometimes you will have that experience where you go, "Shit, where did that come from?" Mm, and yeah. you see why it is that people just go, "Oh, you know, it's it's uh, it's God working through me or whatnot." But if you you know if you don't believe in that way, there's still something where you go that's beyond me i uh, how yeah. am i capable yeah, yeah. of that because work mm. comes through people and it is of them but it's not necessarily it's it is it's a mysterious process and so yeah of course if if you are in tune with if you're if you're good and you're sort of in tune with your own instrument and you are sincere and you're not trying to make it all about yourself and you want to reach other people and connect somehow with, I mean, God, this is so. Th- this this song is so so desolate, but it does also reaching. It is reaching for for contact with someone else. And hey, that could be you because you're listening to it. Mm. And that's why he was one of the greats because he could do that. And yeah. yeah, I'm. It it is transcendent. Do you think there's a comparison to be drawn between George Michael in 1986 and Paul Weller in 1982? You know, because he is splitting his band at their absolute peak. No, I just don't think George Michael needs to disown his past quite as much as Paul Weller does. I'm not saying Paul Weller's disowning the jam, but he's going in a deliberately unrocky direction. Mm. George Michael post-wham, I, th- I think as a songwriter, he's just realising, fuck me, I can actually talk about the reality of my situations and I don't have to plaster on the, the, the perfect smile anymore. Mm. But he's actually, he's gone beyond that in terms of, it could have been awful, man. Yeah. <laughs> he could have made deliberate deliberately dark music which this isn't it, it it's something else mm. and and he's realizing the variety of stuff that he's capable of i think this is a record beyond all of us but also beyond george a little bit and that's mm. what's so special about it mm. because people tend to forget that one were the only teeny group of their era that also had a sizable chunk of male fans you know there were loads of lads in my year when i was at secondary school who just went mental with the hairspray and the fake right. tan and the feeler tops if only to look like something that girls of the time fancied Uh, and i can't see them lads being into this preview of softer solo george because it's even more of a departure than careless whisper yeah yeah completely um, but I mean, uh, you know, it is at number one. Yeah, someone must have bought it. <laughs> well, yeah, someone's bought. I, I think partly, yeah, there is that automatic. It's George, buy it. Yeah, but partly, you know, I mean, imagine hearing this coming out of the radio. There's going to be some people who are grown up enough to accept it, and mm. who are just going to be stopped in their tracks by this record. Mm. Well, you won't see this record in the end of year enemy or melody maker polls as a great single, but it it pisses from a great height on virtually every other thing um, that probably was getting lauded this year. But you can't laud it in the inkies because it's George Michael. But like that Anthony Gormley exhibition, Sarah, there are clouds on the horizon. In an interview with the NME a couple of months from now, on the verge of Wham's last gig, Matt Snow brings up the rumour that the news of the world have a George Michael scandal story that they're not going to run until they feel it's safe to. And he asked George about it and he says... People do keep telling me there's going to be a story, but I can't think what it would be. The news of the world's angle would have to be, if it's big enough that they're sitting on it, some kind of gay story. Either that or a pregnant girl. It's unnerving to think that they're only waiting because they think the public likes me enough at the moment. Hopefully they'll have a long wait, and even then, I'll sue the arse off them. 
laughs. I mean, we're 12 years away from George finally coming out, or at least being frog-marched out by the LAPD, but uh, it's been an open secret in the pop world right from the off, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it, that's so depressing to hear mm. that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It, it's so depressing. I mean, it's just incredibly tough to be gay and be yourself and be a pop star in the 80s. You can't do it mm. because of these cunts at the News of the World and, and, and the rest of it. Yeah. That's heartbreaking to hear, man. Round about this time, Kelvin McKenzie's got fully on board with the who's gay and who's not, to the point of having a fucking whiteboard in the Sun offices with a list of who they know is gay, who they think is gay, and who they know isn't gay. And he's top of the list, isn't he? There's been uh, rumours going around the club scenes in New York that he's had a dirty weekend with a fashion photographer. But the tabloids held out for a very long time throughout the 80s, and it was only on the last day of 1985 that the sun came out with a headline it's a hit gender bender dj thumps wham george about an altercation in a club where a drag dj played i'm your man and sang lyrics about a fake relationship they were having and george went up and had it out with him and and since then the poor sod's been walking about with a sword of murdercles hanging over him Hmm. yeah i mean there was that documentary recently which just uh, recapped the whole fucking gruesome circus around uh, his outage and how he you know it was like a a truckload of lemons fell on his head and he made the hardest gayest glitteriest lemonade out of it and put out outside (laughs) the most wonderful fuck you there has ever been but yeah it's disgusting and i didn't feel good watching it because it is just people now who who really haven't done any reflecting you know it's Mm. basically Mm. blaming him for like well that's what happens when you try to keep a secret and it's a betrayal of your fans and this is kind of horrible punitive thing that they've used to justify the monstering that they're doing of another fucking human being Mm. and it made me really glad that i never got into news in that way like i i did a little bit of news and i could not have done it Mm. i just couldn't and i understand yes people are just doing their jobs etc but fucking hell yeah but what what a shit job yeah what a shit job what the fuck are you doing at what point do you realize like you're tearing around going to brazil to like doorstop the grieving mother of george's dead boyfriend <sighs> and stuff you know just like what are you doing i never get that to be honest with you sarah from from fellow journalists who are like you know oh it's work mm. you know he that toucheth pitch shall be defiled <laughs> biblical but you know yeah i mean that's the thing is like a few hours after he got outed he went on you know he went on cnn and was like yeah, I am not going to apologise for this. Yes, I am gay. Mm. Yeah, of course I couldn't say anything before because look what's happened yeah. now. And I'm mm. not ashamed. And it was incredible. And he must have, you know, he knew that one day it was going to happen. And all of these fucking vile vultures going, you knew this would happen, you knew this would happen. It's like, yeah, yeah, I did. Mm. And now it's happened. So get over it. You know? Well, that's what's heartbreaking about him not still being here. Yeah, That's what's so horrible about this era. Fuckers like Calvin McKenzie... It's abuse, and and they're keeping this kind of info on their files and exerting all the power over this, Mm. and and it's just grotesque to see. So, yeah, this is why it's so heartbreaking that George isn't here now. Mm. I never got to see him live, man, and I would love to fucking watch George Michael sing this precise song. Yeah. Because I suspect this precise song is something that George could have kept on singing for the rest of his life, because it speaks of a feeling... um, that's just you know immense and universal even though even though it's so private and so personal 
everyone has at some point felt this kind of paralysis of of grief or whatever whatever sadness you're going through and yeah it's just heartbreaking his imagine his voice now Mm. singing this it would have been fucking amazing anything else to say about this no, I need to dab at my eyes a little. Oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so a different corner would spend three weeks at number one, eventually giving way to Rock Me Amadeus. It made George Michael the first solo artist to score two number ones with his first two releases, the first person in the UK to score a number one hit that he wrote, sang and produced, but most importantly, it got to number seven in the Billboard chart, which forced his American label to get their thumbs out their arses and prepare for a massive push when his solo career began in earnest. Oh, and the other greatest songwriter of his generation, according to Elton John. Mm. It's not Morrissey, is it? Nick Kershaw. A different corner. Watch out for the big Wham concerts of well coming up this summer. Janice Long, Dixie Peach doing Top of the Bobs next week. We'll leave you with a chart entry at 33 from Whitney Houston. Good night. I Davis, aside the Top of the Pops logo of shame, reminds us of the big Wham concert at Wembley he'll be comparing soon. By the way, Chubbs, do, do you know who the support acts were for Wham the final? Um, no. <laughs> Nick Kershaw? I don't know. Uh-huh. They started by screening the documentary Wham in China, Foreign Skies for the first time, breaking the record for the biggest audience for a film premiere, by the way. And then it was Nick Haywood... And Gary Glitter. Oh Godfathers. <sighs> I know. Why Gary Glitter? That is That's bizarre. He then tells us that Janice Long and Dixie Peach will be in the chair next week and signs off with The Greatest Love of All by Whitney Houston. Born in Newark, New Jersey in 1963, Whitney Houston was the daughter of Sissy Houston, who started the Drinkard Sisters with her sisters in 1938 and was later joined by Sissy's niece, Dionne Warwick. In 1963, when Warwick embarked on a solo career, Whitney's mum formed sweet inspirations with Doris Troy and Dion's sister, Dee Dee, who signed to Atlantic Records and spent the rest of the 60s backing practically every Stax artist, as well as Van Morrison on Brown Eyed Girl and the Jimi Hendrix experience on Burning of the Midnight Lamp before backing Elvis when he returned to the stage at Las Vegas. By the age of 11, Whitney was soloing in a local gospel choir, but had also started to dabble with secular music, making her debut appearance at Manhattan Town Hall singing Tomorrow from Anne. By the late 70s, she was dividing her time between backing her mam, who had gone solo, and starting a career as a fashion model, appearing in Cosmo, Glamour, an advert for Canada Dry, and singing an advertising jingle for the restaurant chain Steak and Ale. And while the likes of Michael Zager and Luther Vandross came a-knocking offering record deals, they were politely knocked back by her mam, who wanted her to finish school first. 
In February of 1983, an A&R from Arista Records saw a singing with a mum in a club in Manhattan and immediately begged his gaffer Clive Davis to sign her up. But there would be two years of woodshedding before she put out her first LP, Whitney Houston, on Valentine's Day of 1985. The first single from the LP, You Give Good Love, only got to number 93 in August of 1985 over here, but the follow-up, Saving All My Love For You, did miles better, getting to number one for two weeks in December of that year, and would have been the Christmas number one, were it not for Comrade Shaker delaying Merry Christmas, everyone, for a year, to magnanimously allow Do They Know It's Christmas to have its little moment in 1984. This single, the follow-up to How Will I Know, which got to number five in February, is the seventh and final cut from her debut LP and was originally co-written in 1976 by Michael Massa, who wrote Touch Me in the Morning for Diana Ross, who was approached by Columbia Records to write a theme song for their Muhammad Ali biopic The Greatest and had actually relocated to Jerusalem to write the song because he felt just drawn there all summer. I don't know. (laughs) It was originally recorded by George Benson, got to number 27 over here in October of 1977 and became part of Houston's early 80s repertoire. Although Clive Davis thought it was too syrupy to put on a young new artist's first album, Houston, backed up by Massa, who she'd become mates with, threatened to scream and scream and scream until she was sick because she could if it wasn't put on the album. It entered the charts last week at number 46, and this week it's jumped 13 places to number 33. So here's a bit of video filmed at the actual Apollo in Harlem under some credits. And fucking hell, chaps, who would have thought that this song was about Muhammad Ali and we can lump this in with Cassius Clay by Dennis <laughs> Al Capone, Ali Shuffle by Alvin Cash, Rumble in the Jungle by the Fugees, and The Black Superman and in Zaire by Johnny Wakelin. Fucking hell. <laughs> yeah, that's a pub quiz question, isn't it? I mean, you, you just yes. do not expect that at all. And I like the George Benson version um, of this. Yeah. Oh, poor Whitney. We're ending on two stars who were no longer with us. Mm. I mean, I prefer the Whitney who's allowed to dance yeah, yeah, yeah. With, with somebody and, with anybody you know, uh, <laughs> you know I, I still contend that it's not right it's such a fucking amazing record uh, because of that voice but oh yeah I think because of the success of this exact record the greatest love of all she's gonna be firmly shoved mm. from here on in into this thing of doing ballads which which it's kind of inevitably ends with the with the Dolly Parton cover yeah and she's encouraged to just let her juggernaut voice do these big schmaltzy numbers the trouble is none of her producers or arrangers are smart enough to realize with that kind of voice that whitney's got that melismatic gymnastic voice it's best to keep the arrangements kind of sparse uh, the trouble is mm. with this record is they try and match it and so yeah. consequently we keep getting these records where as a listener you feel kind of bullied and frog marched into emotion <laughs> these kind of indistinguishably bombastic backing tracks always with that nescafe gold blend sax oh yes um, <laughs> it kind of hammers the songs home but it also hammers all possible emotion out of the experience of listening to them really. mm. so this left me a bit cold yeah it's too fucking mm. much isn't it really like i i do i i think this is horrible and i hear, hear. um i loved whitney and i didn't realize this actually until i was like 
when George Michael died, there was this pure sorrow that I could have known was coming. And with Whitney, I was taken aback, actually, how upset I was Mm. when she died because I wasn't like Mm. a, a fan you know, but some of them just get to you, and uh, for whatever reason, it, it had something to do with how she had this great purity about her in some ways. Not to fetishize it as a lot of people mm. did, but this great, incredible voice. And she just ended up dead in a hotel bath, like any number of you know rock and roll assholes. Mm. And it's mm. just there's something so grim about it. Yeah, you know, it's like we may coat down your favorite pop stars, but they're human beings who hurt. <laughs> you know, and there's this incredible, uh, this horrible dissonance between you know the way that she was there to kind of spread joy and bring excitement to the people, and then mm. there was this horrible pain behind it, which is you know Taylor's oldest time, isn't it? Mm. Well, I mean, the thing you realise now, of course, is that actually these records, like the greatest love of all, although they're selling themselves on soul, on exposing Whitney's inner being and emotions they're they're sort of actually a front and that they're, they're hiding real torment and despair that she can't bring to the surface whether she won't mm. allow herself or probably more likely she's not allowed to you know and her mm. journey yeah, to yeah, this yeah. record greatest love of all i think starts with saving all my love for you in 85 and it ends up through one moment in time in 88 with that winter in 92 <laughs> where she just stays number one for like what feels like 300 weeks. ever yeah, I mean, the first female artist to do 10 weeks at number one since Doris Day in the 50s, you know. Right. So um, commercially, you could argue that this is a very, very smart record. But I think for us as listeners, it, it leaves us kind of, yeah, sad and cold, really. Mm. I do have a soft spot for Saving All My Love For You. And um, what was the other one you one said? Moment what, one Moment In Time, which is like this. And it, it's, it's like someone singing it as they're leaping from a tower, just going, <laughs> ah! <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous, but in a, in a good way. Mm. It is interesting and tragic in some ways the way that her career went I think she knew what she wanted to do but yes I'm not sure that she ever really got to do it you can just feel there's kind of a chafing you know because part of it was that I mean she got really slammed for going too white and too commercial and too pop Mm -hmm. Um, Al Sharpton called her whitey Houston which is which is just painful this is not something that I'm qualified to speak about but there's oh god I heard that and went "Ah," well I mean contrast this with Janet well, exactly, yes. Mm. There is no way either of them are going to fail, but, oh man, who would you sooner listen to a compilation of? Well, yeah. I mean, it's fundamentally the difference between an exertion of control, which is exactly what Janet's doing. Whitney always felt buffeted about by her her paymasters, if you like. Um, mm. I know she fought to get this record on, but this is the thing with Whitney. There's a slight confusion about her motivations for me, and that's why I've never really bonded with her, if you like, as an artist, because mm. there seems to be a really steely commercial sense. But the trouble is, it's not right. That record she ends up making really late in her career, that really suggested, like, fuck me, you could have been amazing if perhaps mm. you'd have exerted yeah. some of this control back then. Mm. But, you know, I'm, I'm not judging Whitney Whitney on that it's it's a shitty business you know and you've got to get along but oh man it's lots of wasted years of this big big pompous bombastic balladry oh Mm. i mean i fucking hate this song Mm. it's it's like (laughs) being pinned down by the bad 80s and having it fart on your head for four (laughs) minutes it's fucking awful it's it's for it's for karaoke cunts and future x-factor contestants who are waiting for simply the best to be made Mm, mm. it is so kind of gloopy it Mm. is like being in a theater and it's suddenly being flooded with the slime out of ghostbusters (laughs) 2 oh sarah you said ghostbusters 2 which makes me just think of me and sarah's favorite line from that film which i want to apply to this record now (laughs) 
Everything you are doing is bad. <laughs> Everything you are doing is bad. I, I want you to know this. <laughs> I mean, it's not right, but it's okay. It's almost like a proto-Destiny's Child mm. track, isn't it? Mm. It's amazing. Everybody loves that. I mean, you know, I'm Your Baby Tonight is a bit slept on, mm. um, which was uh, written by um, L.A. Reid and Babyface to challenge her. Like, they wrote it to be unsingable. And she said, hold my beer right, and nailed right. it inside an hour. Yeah. Because she was brilliant at these big bellowing runs but also the little precise ones you know and it's horrible when you uh, when you remember that you know she mm. lost it to drugs you know and just had this that was all kind of destroyed yeah um i mean she was you know by the time she died she was getting better again this is what always happens yeah. they get better and then they fucking die in the bath if only she'd watch drug watch <laughs> sorry that's yes. Fucking hell. But I mean, there's for me, like my favourite, like I said, I don't, I definitely don't hate all of her output. This is like the thing that I, f I feel like is most closely associated mm. with her until you remember that she did I Want to Dance with Somebody and then you go, oh, yes, fucking yeah. hell. Which is just pure joy, isn't it? Mm. You know, you can't resist that really. I mean, the problem I have with Whitney Houston is that, that to my mind, she was born in the wrong time. Mm. If she'd been about in the 60s, she'd been competing with Auntie Dion for the choicest cuts from the Baccarat David Kitchen. Mm. You know, in the 70s, she would have been working with Gamble and Huff or Rogers and Edwards, but it's the mid 80s. So she gets a few decent peppy tunes, but she also gets a ton of mawkish shit like this. Mm. Yeah, it is mawkish. Oh, yeah, it's exactly. awful. I mean, my favourite performance of hers probably is that, um, I don't know if if you've ever seen this she sang the Star Spangled Banner at the Super Bowl yeah. in 1991 fucking up and if you can there's this horrible kind of military shadow over it quite literally there's like a fly past at the end mm. if you can separate it from that which is you know it's a bit tricky but it's mind blowing and she's so giddy to be so she just rocks up there in a tracksuit and she's so giddy to be so in control of her instrument and to get the response in real time mm. to what a staggering force she could just casually unleash upon all the thousands of people there mm. you can't deny the power of you know a black woman singing the american national anthem for one thing but it's her and she's having so much fun mm. i can't think of a clip that better communicates to we mortals what it's like to be able to really sing mm. like a goddess on a mountaintop and yeah. hear thousands of people respond to going ah that's <laughs> you know. the problem though we we know how good she is yeah. and in the end it's just like listening to fucking eddie van halen or someone like that yes mate i know you can play the guitar mm. so why are you fucking over whittling everything yeah that's the thing about that performance though she does not over whittle at all there's oh, yeah. that you know and it's like and it's in like four four as well this is weird sort of march mm. arrangement so it's very strange. Yeah, I mean, just... the Star Spangled Banner is the parallel bars of singing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can you can make it your own, and she really she really did. Marvin Gaye is mm. a good example. Uh, Cole Lewis is a very bad example. Mm. I think Krusty the Clown did it best, really. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the the king was Leslie Nielsen in. Uh, oh in God! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Frank Bruno. Mike Tyson fight where D'Angelo sang uh, the Star Spangled Banner and um, some bloke out the pub sang God Save the Queen for us <laughs> and it was just like you just watch it you go oh god we're so shit <laughs> <laughs> but 
anyway, the video, fucking hell, I wish I'd have known at the time this video was set in the fucking Apollo. Because mm-hmm. round about this time, I had bought and was absolutely rinsing the original Live at the Apollo by James Brown. Mm. I would just spend all my time lying on my bed listening to it, just imagining how skill it would be to be inside that building. Yeah. And here it is. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's, it's Whitney's mum, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Starring That's in it, sissy, helping yeah. a little girl out who's obviously going to turn into Whitney Houston. So it, the mm. video's not bad. What's weird, though, of course, is that in the top of the pop studio, we see the people not doing a lot, and then the mm. video becomes a screen almost that they're all looking up at, um, mm. but they're not really. And no. yeah, it's, it's that same old confusion about the production values that seems to seems to go throughout this episode, really. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I had bad feelings watching this video because a couple of years ago I had terrible cramps and I just took as much codeine as I was safely allowed to and for some reason watched both of the Whitney documentaries back-to-back. There's like two feature-length ones. <laughs> oh, mate. <laughs> it's okay if you've had codeine. It really takes the edge off. But, I mean, they're both very good. They're extremely grim, obviously, and one goes further than the other in suggesting how bad her child it was um but and also both contain a wealth of evidence that bobby brown is a thoroughly useless piece of shit who to be charitable about it did not help anyway she's there's a there's a moment where she takes her daughter bobby christina a tiny like three or four year old bobby christina on stage and kind of prods her to sing and the kid obviously doesn't want to be there and it really reminded me of that because whitney like meets her own younger self on stage Mm. and it's like oh bobby also who died exactly the same way as her a year and a half later and it's just so if i could have enjoyed this video at all before i definitely couldn't have done after that (laughs) poor whitney so the following week the greatest love of all so <laughs> 17 places to number 16. That didn't go as well as I thought it might. Aww. And then spent two weeks at number 10 and finally made it to number 8. The follow up, the lead off cut from her second LP, Whitney, I Want to Dance with Somebody, smashed into the chart at number 10 and would spend two weeks at number one as the meat in a Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now slash Star Trekking sandwich. And she'd go on to rack up two more number ones, 10 more top 10 hits, and 29 more top 40 entries before she died in 2012 after an accidental drug overdose. It's not just Zamo. <laughs> and that, pop craze youngsters, brings us to the end of this episode of Top of the Pops. What's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One kicks on with more Cockney misery in EastEnders, where Lofter asks Lou Beale for Michelle Fowler's and in marriage. Then Tomorrow's World looks at all the nuclear waste Britain reprocesses and asks, why do we bother? Charlie Spedding, Michael Robinson, Willie Thorne and Susan Devoy join Bill Beaumont, Emlyn Hughes and David Coleman for a question of sport. Then it's the nine o'clock news. I woke up one morning, the Carl Elaine sitcom that everyone's forgotten about. Then it's question time, the documentary series Brazil, Brazil, the weather and they close down at five to midnight. 
BBC Two is currently halfway through Best of Brass, where Yorkshire and the South Midlands throw down in a semi-final brass clash at the Assembly Rooms Darbear. Then it's a Saturday Review special where Russell Davies interviews the German director Edgar Wright about his 15-hour film Heimat, which is to be broadcast over 11 consecutive nights on BBC Two from Saturday. I fucking loved Heimat. Great show. The documentary series Brass Tax wonders if a chemical leak of the type that happened in Bhopal a couple of years ago could happen over here and pinpoints over 200 communities who don't know that they could be at risk. And then it's the last in the present series of 40 Minutes, which follows a knackered old coaster boat captained by Edward Heath's former buckler as it delivers unglamorous cargoes around the North Sea. Then it's the grand final and last ever episode of Pop Black with Jimmy White beating Kirk Stevens, presented by David Icke. That's followed by Newsnight, The Weather, an open university preview of all the weekend's pulsating programmes, and they finish off with an open university show about St Lucia closing down at 20 past midnight. ITV bangs out a repeat of the A-Team, followed by the sitcom The Brothers McGregor. Then Robert Carradine stars as a cop killer in the reboot of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Then TVI looks at the life of Kurt Waldheim, currently running for the presidency of Austria, and asks whether he was a Nazi or not. After news at 10 and regional news in your area, it's a repeat of Kojak, followed by a repeat of Six Centuries of Verse, then That's Hollywood, a clip show of theme songs from the likes of Star Wars and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, then it's Night Thoughts and Close Down at half 12. Channel 4 continues with Worldwide Reports, who have a good tot about acid rain and wonders if a new power station in Ireland is directly responsible for dead trees and river pollution in Wales. Then it's the first in the new series of the music show Club Mix, featuring Janet Jackson, Paul Blake and the Fire Posse and Trevor MacDonald. Then it's real kids' issues in the drama series What Now, where some youths in Liverpool have a shit time of it on the dole. Then it's Fellow Travellers, the 1983 film where an Israeli pop singer raises money for a Palestinian university, unaware that his mates are funneling the money towards terrorist groups and Mossad is on his arse. Then it's the discussion programme Voices, which talks about the failures of revolutionary socialism and scientific reason and the modern world's loss of shared values. Then it's more of their lordship's house, and they close down at midnight. Fucking hell, there's there's a fun evening on the fourth channel, eh? <laughs> so, me dears, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? Probably, I mean, Falco, because he's got to be talked about. Yeah. Um, oh, yes. Uh, the Janet video, how mm. shit the Janet Grange Hill video is. Yeah. And probably at the time, oh, what, was the, what the fuck was that George Michael song all about? Because I just did not understand it. Mm. God, I, there's, there's been so much in this episode, really. Mm. I mean, mm. like mm. some really next level singers like Morton Harkett, Suzanne Vega, George Michael, Whitney Houston. What the fuck? You know, mm. I mean, so maybe if I had my head about me, I'd be talking about what a selection that is. But yeah, I'd probably end up talking about Just Say No at length as yeah, I have yeah, done. Yeah. I don't know, because that's that's the standout for all the wrong reasons, isn't it? Mm. What are we buying on Saturday? Um, George, if I was feeling melancholy. Janet, if I was feeling nasty. <laughs> Bolko Aha 
probably Vega as well. Mm. And um, yeah, not George because I didn't understand it. But yeah, Janet was already bagged by then. And what does this episode tell us about April of 1986? It tells us a bit of a lie. It tells mm. us... You know, things aren't that bad. I know. <laughs> I mean, I think 86 was pretty bad. For me, it was like about a couple of albums. It was about Parade and Control. Mm. So I was listening less, perhaps, because there was so much dross out there. But this had, this is not a bad episode for I 86. Know. Not a bad episode at all. It's almost as if Top of the Pops knew that it was going to be a landlord inspection and they've had a bit of a tidy up. <laughs> yeah, I think it suggests that British eccentricity is always going to endure and evolve kind of beyond Mm. itself and into interesting new shapes. But we should still not try to do what Americans do unless we really know what we're doing and have a full tank of premium unleaded. (laughs) (laughs) And that... Pop Craze Youngsters brings us to the end of this episode of Chart Music. All I've got to do now is trot out the usual promotional flange. Website, chart-music.co.uk. Facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at chartmusictotp. Money down the G-string. Patreon.com slash chartmusic. Thank you, Sarah B. Thank you. God bless you, Neil Kulkarne. No worries. My name's Al Needham. I fuck everybody. (laughs) I fuck you all. (laughs) Chart music. I get angry just thinking about it makes me mad. Little kids doing drugs, it turns my stomach. That stuff hurts. It stops you from living up to your potential. It holds you back. It hurts the user. It hurts his family. And it hurts his friends. I just want to shake some sense into you kids that are using drugs and think about using So remember, don't or else. Okay? I always feel very sorry for people and in fact from my own personal point of view I take a, a great deal of pleasure in beating people who, who I think are on drugs just because it, it just gives me that you know, added satisfaction well third attempt at 490 and he's clear the master is clear the ultimate advice I could probably give you and that is just say no I can't really imagine any drugs helping a sportsman I think the whole thing is a question of being fit a question of being mentally alert I can't believe there are too many drugs that really help me. Six more, glorious shot. Well, I suppose the simple advice is to say no. I can't really see any point of taking any sort of drug whatsoever. If any kids think that, that drugs are going to help them, A, get a job, B, be much more relaxed in company, uh, they've got another thing coming. If you're with your friends and one of your friends offers you, even though it's going to be hard, just say no, because otherwise you'll be at the end of the queue. Ray, no one ever listens to what you say, but you'll be mugs to take drugs. Drugs just help you fade away. Drugs just hurt you. Friends desert you. The people you love have to watch you play. So get your head instead. Drugs can't match imagination. It's the clothes you wear and your hair. It's the things that you say in conversation. 
It's the thing to do, it's up to you You don't have to wait a minute It's your life, it's life Say drugs aren't in it Drugs aren't in it Be all you can be, choose life, not drugs <laughs>